1976, Leo the Golden Retriever was just your average American dog. He was happy, goofy, and living with his family in Maryland just outside of Washington, D.C. His master was a man named Bradford Bishop, and he loved Leo. He took Leo on long hikes in the woods and on weekend camping trips with the family. Bradford, his high school sweetheart and wife, Anne, their three sons, William, Brenton, and Jeffrey, and Bradford's mother, Lobelia. They were a very outdoorsy family. It was one of the reasons Leo loved them so much. But mostly Leo loved his nightly walks with Lobelia. She was 68, but she took him out on nice long walks after the boys went to bed. On March 1st, 1976, Lobelia and Leo were just coming inside. Bradford had come home at some point while they were out, but they could immediately tell something was wrong. Anne was slumped in the corner with a jacket over her body and Leo could smell blood. Then Leo watched as his master, Bradford Bishop, bludgeoned his own mother, Lobelia, to death with a 10-inch sledgehammer. After that, Bradford went upstairs and used the same hammer to calmly murder each of his three boys. William was 14, Brenton was 10, and Jeffrey, the baby, was only five. Later, investigators would find deep grooves in the ceilings of the bedrooms caused by how forcefully Bradford had swung the hammer while killing his sons. Then, he calmly packed up the bodies, a canister of gas, and his beloved dog, Leo, into the family station wagon. What strikes me the most is that Leo must have stayed quiet the entire time because the neighbors never heard a sound. The next day, Bradford would be seen with Leo, the yellow dog, at a sporting goods store. No one has seen or heard from either of them since. This is the story of Bradford Bishop, the family annihilator. I'm Natalie Levy. I'm Abla Towers. I'm Jen Schaefer. And this is Detective Society. So let's start by having Jen and Alba introduce themselves. All right. So I'm Alba, Natalie's a college friend and maid of honor. Yeah. I'm Jen, also college friend and uh, bridesmaid. <laughs> the most important people in Natalie's. Yeah. Well, basically. basically. They're my favorite people, but I understand that you guys might not know them. Like, so yeah. sad for you. <laughs> so... Before we get into this episode, I like to do a little bit of housekeeping before we actually get into what went down. Number one, last episode, well, during the mini-sode, I edited out um, someone's last name, and then he texted me and was like, you can just say my name. Oh, that's so, good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, our first donor and the winner of the mini-sode giveaway was named Troy Bernardo. Uh, clearly, he does not care if you know who he is. Cool Hi, guy. Troy. Yeah. yeah. Cool dude. So, oh, also for the giveaway, we'll be sending out the stickers and cards to the winner um, and our first Patreon donors later this week. Thank you to Brooke for being a kick-ass donor. She's our second donor. 
I hope she's listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Way to go, Brooke. <laughs> yeah, good job. We, we all appreciate you. Well, we really appreciate our supporters on Patreon, all two of you, and <laughs> hope that you guys enjoy the podcast. Two. Yeah, and, and if you if you do enjoy the podcast, please feel free to donate. You can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash detective society. So we're working on designing some merch for the website. But until then, you can follow us on Twitter at The Detective Pod or join our Facebook group by searching The Detective Society Podcast on Facebook or visit parttimepodcast.com where Mike and I will be building any future podcasts that we decide to do together. Um, any ideas for podcasts, guys? Um, not off the top of my head now. Yeah. <laughs> Some more we should do for... something happy. Yeah. <laughs> in contrast to. Maybe just rate like dogs. Just talk about puppies. Yeah. So people do talk a lot about the fact that they just listen to the podcast to listen in for the dogs. Like It's what got me into it. Yeah, same. If you guys listened closely actually to this episode, Billy is legitimately snoring on the couch behind us. Yep. Yeah. She had a very long day of, of doing nothing. Yeah. And it's yeah. tough. Dog's life. When you're that cute, like, it's, it's hard. Hashtag dog's life. Yeah. Uh, also, please rate and review. So um, shout out to Trisha Lynn. Thank you for the review. And to Alexandra, who is kind enough to rate and review us, but says that our shows aren't long enough, which is super flattering because I was really worried for a long time that they were way too long and that no one wanted to listen to an hour and a half of me rambling. I feel like that's a rare comment yeah. on a podcast because it's usually like, okay, make it shorter. Get to the point. Yeah, it's like, hurry up. Come on, friend. I don't have all the hours in the world. <laughs> Except that that's literally all that we do have. <laughs> so anything else? Any housekeeping? I know that you guys have listened to the podcast in the past, so I'm always interested in hearing like, this is what I think. Well, I'm always, like, amused at how uh, surprised Mike is about the housekeeping every episode. He, like, <laughs> seems to forget it's a thing that you do, so I always get a nice chuckle out of that. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a thing we have to do. So It's because Mike literally does not write any of these episodes. <laughs> it's always me in front of a computer writing everything out, doing all the research, like, writing in all of the housekeeping stuff. I design the websites. I run our, like, groups and our Twitter and Mike legitimately just sits there and is like, oh, hey, so we want to talk about murder again? And he hates it. Like, I can tell that he just, <laughs> it just bums him out. It's dark, but, you yeah. know. And you're you're the play-by-play guy. He's the color, you know? So he can't prepare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what he brings. So let's get to the murder. Cool. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this case because it the case is not okay, and none of the people that have anything to do with the case are okay, and nothing is okay. No, no, this not is at pretty all. bleak, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> welcome to Detective Society. Yeah, <laughs> where we deal with anxiety by talking about murder. So this guy, his name is actually William Bradford Bishop. And it's one of these families where William Bradford Bishop is like the name of everyone. So he went by Bradford. So that's what I'll call him. Cool. He was born in 1936 in Pasadena, California to Lobelia and William Bradford Bishop Sr. Also, the name Lobelia. Yeah. I did not see that coming when I read his name. 
do we know where she's from? Yeah, no. like, what is this? I couldn't figure it out at all. There's, like, so little known about her other than, like, this one picture on the internet that is spread around. Like, number one, her son looks exactly like her, but she also had, yes. like, <laughs> this crazy, like, fuzzy old lady hair. She looked like a fucking hoot. It's very sad that she got murdered. Yeah. By her son. By yeah. her son. <laughs> So, growing up, Bradford was handsome, smart, and athletic. The trifecta for being a murderer. (laughs) So, it's no surprise that he went on to graduate from Yale and marry his beautiful high school sweetheart, Anne, who was, in all honesty, freaking beautiful. You can literally Google Anne Wells Bishop and her – like, there's one picture of her in a bikini that always comes up, and she was – Super cute and also smart as hell. Did she also go to Yale with him? I don't or? think that she went to Yale, but she went on to work for like the University of Maryland University System. Okay. So she was really smart. She was a great mother. She was like very welcoming to Lobelia um, as far as like, I know that it can always be hard to deal with your mother-in-law. So she was always like very, very welcoming. She was excited to have her in their home, whereas I don't think Bradford was into it as much. Obviously. I mean, yeah. (laughs) So not too much is known about Bradford's early life until he graduates from college. So when he does graduate from Yale in 1959, he joins the army and spends the next four years in counterintelligence. So almost immediately, they identify that this guy is really smart and really driven. He enlisted in the Army uh, during peacetime, but he was assigned to the intelligence school and where he learned in like a very short amount of time, Serbo-Croatian. So all the signs point to murdering family. All signs point to murdering family. Oh, you know, Serbo-Croatian? Like, no, you got to go. His first assignment was in Italy, where he carried out mundane intelligence sessions, translating Serbo-Croatian journals into English and listening to Yugoslav radio broadcasts. After being discharged from the army, he earned his master's degree in Italian at the Verona campus of Middlebury College. Which sounds awesome. Like, you're just with, like, your babe wife in Italy. like Listening to Yugoslavian radio. Yeah. Yeah. Super fun. Riveting. (laughs) But... Uh, there's actually a lot of ambiguity about what he actually did when he was in the army. Years later at dinner parties, he would like tell this joke to his friends that the highlight of his spying career was infiltrating the Yugoslav army ski team. But some of what we're going to talk about later leads me to think that there was more going on than he was letting on. After leaving the army, he joined the U.S. Foreign Service. Clearly he... Wanted to be traveling all the time. Because of his fluency in multiple languages, he spoke English, Italian, French, Spanish, and Serbo-Croatian. Two languages is not enough. No. He really... I I mean... He went for it. If I'm going to murder my family, I'm at least going to be a go-getter about it. Yeah. Yeah. So he was... He quickly got, like, an early foreign assignment to Ethiopia and within a year was promoted and transferred to Milan, which sounds like a real upgrade. Yeah. Definitely. fancy. It's very nice there. What if we said that and you were just like, actually, Milan's gross. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. (laughs) That is a downgrade. Not that I've, like, been there, you know? Like, I'm talking about, like, what I see, like, 
what a life. on Instagram, but you know, like aside from murdering your family, he so, really yeah, could this have is all had pre murder. Yeah, this he is all could charmed. have had an amazing life. People talk about like him being super charming, and this murder, these murders, kind of like. I guess we could see them building. I'll, I'll like walk us through the build up to them, but there's a lot that we still don't know about what was going on in his head and what, like, what was going on in the background. Because from what I can see, that that life sounds awesome. So after being transferred to Milan, he did a rotation over here stateside, where he earned a second master's degree in African studies at UCLA. After that, he returned to Africa, where he worked in Botswana. By the time that he was rotated back to the U.S. again, Anne had given birth to their three young sons, and the family would be joined by Lobelia, who had recently lost her husband. So she's recently widowed. Her husband left her a chunk of money, and she basically says, like, let me help you raise these three kids. Anne obviously wants a career, um, and she helps them put a down payment down on a house in Bethesda, Maryland. That was so nice of her. That was super nice of her. Yeah, so so sweet, much of this you know? story, I'm like, oh, like the first half is like, what a lovely family who love each other and yeah. just want to support each yeah, other. Yeah, I'm just going to look after your kids yeah. while you do all these amazing things. And are a spy. Yeah. So the bishops melded easily into the middle class community. Brad and Anne played mixed doubles in the neighborhood club tennis tournaments and took neighborhood children on camping and skiing trips. Obviously, because this is a Lifetime movie that we're writing. Uh, But everything wasn't as perfect as it seemed. Obviously, because people are going to get murdered. Uh, Investigators later discovered that Bishop had consulted three psychiatrists in the years leading up to the murders and also had um, been in therapy for quite a while and that he had been taking a prescription drug called Cirax to treat symptoms of depression and insomnia. I did a little bit of research on Cirax and it's basically like the precursor to Valium. There's definitely a chance that he was kind of just like fucked up and not there really, but... My yeah. assumption is it's the 1970s and drugs are, like, way more powerful than they are now. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as you said that he was on medication, it's – okay. And, like – The see, red flags are building. Yeah, like, psychiatric help in the 70s, not that it was, like, bad, but it's definitely not where it's at, like, today. I don't think that, it, like, people really understood a lot of the things that were wrong with people as well then. Well, I, and I also think there was probably a lot less oversight when it came to giving prescriptions. Yeah, for sure. People – may have been giving out prescriptions and not understanding the kind of dependency that is possible to build on some of these drugs. Not that I take any prescription drugs, so, like, what the fuck do I know? Yeah, we're yeah. not experts. Nope. <laughs> uh, Especially FYI. Uh, 1970s uh, psychiatric. FYI, yeah. none of us are experts. No. If you're just listening to this show for the first time, we're not experts. We're yes. just kind of a bunch of silly kids who... Are interested in murder. Um, so at work, whereas Bradford had been really excelling for a long time, he was kind of like on this straight shot on the up and up. He was stuck behind a desk for the first time in his career. He was very much used to being out there and being a field agent. And now he was in a building in D.C., not in Botswana or Milan. Just another red, red flag. 
Yeah. So he gets passed over for this promotion, which prompts him to confide in a colleague that he's depressed. He feels that he's getting older and his prospects are kind of disappearing. His home is being run by his mom. He's not really a family man. It doesn't make that much sense to him to have to be around like, why would I have to be around for my kids when I'd rather be a spy? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to go back to either Italy or Africa. Yeah. And since Lobelia was at home with the kids and was taking advantage of her mother-in-law's presence and expanding her horizons when it came to her career, there was an emerging women's movement to be able to study both um, women's studies and art at the University of Maryland. And Anne was really excelling uh so as brad's career was slowing down hers was speeding up and i think that there was also they were having some problems within their marriage because he didn't necessarily feel comfortable with that yeah and it's the 1970s and it's the 1970s so it's not like women are empowered to be like hey friend i would like your career too yeah i'll i'll sit back and watch you which awesome. seems crazy to me because she spends basically the first half of her life following him around the world while he's a spy. And then when she has something that she feels is promising for her, he gets upset about it. And like, so from what I understand, she was kind of relieved that he didn't get this promotion because it meant that they wouldn't have to go back overseas. And that was another big point of contention for them. Right. She also had his three children. Yeah. Like, three boys. Don't you sometimes want to, like, reach back in time and, like, shake dudes and be like, your wife just had babies. Like, be cool for ten minutes. Be cool. Just be a little more supportive in this situation. And again, having children, like, in the 1970s. Forget it. Like, just I don't want to have kids now. Like, no thank you. Yeah. But they still, like... Knock you out back then? I think that it was and very you just much woke like up with yeah, a child? yeah, like it was very much twilight sleep when it came to any kind of anesthesia. Or- that sounds great, but at the same time, like no, you just go like you just pass out and you wake up and just, here's your child. Well, you know those stories about like babies being switched at birth. I'm just like, of course that happens yeah. because the mom is knocked out the entire time, and then it's just like, here you go, this is your baby, and you it's wake like, up yeah. and it's like, okay, I guess. Sure. Yeah. If you are telling me that as a medical expert, I will take this child's hold. Yeah, generally speaking, mm-hmm. if a doctor tells me something, I'm a lot more inclined to be like, oh, yes, of course, mm-hmm. I the agree. doctor said. <laughs> so this leads me to March 1st, 1976. This is when the shit really goes down. Bishop is up for another promotion. And by all accounts, this guy, Bradford, is very much a type A personality. He was very driven, but he also had kind of a terrible temper if he didn't get his way. So also something that I should mention is the career track at the State Department where he was working is very much an up or out culture. So either you get promoted or you're forced to leave. So it can be super cutthroat. So March 1st, 1976, he has a meeting in the morning where he's informed that he will not be receiving the promotion he's been working for. His secretary tells investigators later on that he actually looked like physically ill afterwards. 
And he told her that he didn't feel well and left work early. Well, maybe that's why you're not getting promoted, homie. Like, you can't just fucking leave work. You gotta put your time in. Come on, friend. So he leaves work and he drives from Foggy Bottom, where the State Department headquarters are, to a bank, like his bank, where he withdrew $400. Then he drives to the Montgomery Mall, which I don't even think exists anymore. Um, and buys a sledgehammer and a gas can from Sears, which I also Ooh, don't wow. think exists that's, anymore. That's a yeah. twist. Yeah. So he has like all these errands that he goes on. <laughs> he goes from Sears where he uh, heads straight to the gas station that was like across the street from the mall and he fills up the gas canister. And from there, he drives to a hardware store where police believe he purchased a shovel and a pitchfork. All of this bodes super well. Yeah, Yeah, whoa. This escalated so quickly from, like, not being promoted to, like, premeditating murder. Like, this is literally, like, six hours. Yeah. To the point that I'm sure he could have gotten a shovel at Sears. It's almost like he was buying things in separate places. Like, it reminds me of, like, Breaking Bad when he tells Jesse, like, you need to buy all these things in different stores. Because otherwise, if you're buying all those things together... And he also went, so he'll use credit cards later, but he went to the bank to take out cash specifically and went and bought these things with cash. And I'm like, this fucking guy. You don't just think of that. How long did he contemplate this for? Because, like, it seems like, you know, six hours is a really short time span and he seems to have his shit together. Like, he knows what he's about to do. So here's the thing, guys. He goes... Through the motions of getting ready to straight up murder his family super quickly. Like, who knows what you need to do in order to make people legitimately disappear unless, A, you've been planning it for a very, very long time, or B, you've done it before. Which is why I was thinking back on, like, all of his time in counterintelligence. Yes. And, like, oh, yeah, I just, like, infiltrated a ski team. Like, who the hell is going to spend money having you do that? It's totally possible that this dude was just making people disappear in Europe. That is true. Yeah. All of this is conjecture. I There is no evidence to support <laughs> yeah, we, this. This is just what I think. So he gets back home to Bethesda, which is just outside of D.C., around 8 that night. What we think happened is, because, again, there are no witnesses to back this up. What we think happened, other than Leo the dog, who yeah. is not around. So what we think happened is, um, we don't know how it started, but the boys are asleep. Lobelia has Leo out on their nightly walk, and Bradford comes home and murders Anne. We don't know if, like, they had a fight or if he just came in with a hammer and was like, I got to get this done. Um, But then we think that his mother came in and surprised him. Like, he wasn't expecting her back that early. Um, and then maybe she saw Anne's body and freaked out, but then he bludgeons her too. Now, I know I mentioned earlier that he killed his family with a sledgehammer, but when I think of a sledgehammer, I feel like I think of one that takes, you need like two hands to carry, like the ones at the fair where like, it's got like a big end and you hold it like an ax and like, it might be kind of like a one and done situation where like you hit someone and like, that's it. That person is destroyed. 
Not the case with this hammer. Oh. Oh, okay. So I was looking at a picture of it, and in the, like, evidence files, they have the picture of it next to a ruler. So it's only 10 inches long from the end of the hammer to the end of the handle, which means that, like, you would have to be so intimately up next to someone to use this effectively. Like, it really freaked me out when I thought about it that way. Yeah. Like, you would think smaller, not so bad, but all the force that would have to go into it. Yeah, exactly. So I'll, I'll read you guys a quote from an investigator who discovered the bodies. He said, I'll never forget the hammer marks on the ceiling above the top bunk bed in one of the boys' rooms, the number of marks and how many times he must have hit his own son with what is essentially like a very small hammer. Yeah, like a handheld. Yeah. So after he kills Lobelia, he moves upstairs and one by one, very methodically kills his little boys. And like, I obviously, because I love to torture myself, went online and found pictures of these beautiful, oh, innocent oh, angels. God. And they're just as beautiful as their mom. They are all like blonde. And there's a really famous picture of them all on a camping trip. And they all are like blonde with like pink cheeks and they all have 70s bowl haircuts. Oh my like, God. They're angels. so beautiful. They're such a beautiful family. And I can't think of like the amount of rage that it would take to be able to force yourself to do this to the people you love. Ugh. So after the killings, police think that Bishop wrapped the bodies up in blankets and loaded the corpses into the back of his 1974 maroon Chevrolet station wagon, along with Leo the dog. And then he drove 300 miles in the middle of the night. Can I just jump in and just say, like, I think it's so weird that he would kill his kids, but not his dog. What the right? fuck? Like, the kids are super innocent and, like, but how do you rationalize that, like, the dog is innocent, too? So he's cool. Like, that's fine. And you killed your own mother. And children. What? Because you didn't get promoted? Like, oh, God. I don't know. Well, also, like... What I thought to myself was like, oh, I guess he loves the dog more. I I guess so. Like, the dog can't speak. Yeah, right? maybe yeah. The dog isn't a loose end. He just loves his dog. And yeah. guess what? Like, a dog doesn't have demands. And a dog isn't, like, a dynamic personality who has, like, re- like requires your time for the next 18 years. Yeah, or your dog is not, like, out thriving on her own. Yeah. You yeah. know? Your dog doesn't make you resentful. Exactly. Your dog always loves you, no matter what. And he loved him anyway, even though he was a murderer. Yeah, that's... that's, Dogs are pure because they even love people that murder their entire family. Well, what makes me, like, crazy is that having, like, these two idiots behind you, (laughs) um, they make annoying noises even when nothing is happening. Like, sometimes... The bus will pass by our window and Rusty will just go nuts barking. This dog did not bark once because the neighbors didn't hear a sound. The neighbors heard nothing the entire night. He's walking around the house murdering his family with a hammer and the dog isn't barking and no one hears anything. Was he on medication? 
the dog was also on medication. Oh, like was the dog yeah. on medication? I couldn't find that information in all of my files. I, I can't yeah. imagine. <laughs> I just can't know. imagine. Especially like if what kind of dog a golden retriever. It was a golden retriever. Which makes it like more sinister. Yes, yeah, because, because they're so sweet. Especially with I mean, children. Dogs, you know? Like they're the one dog. Yeah. So if the kids that you are hanging around are getting murdered and you don't find anything wrong with it. Leo, Not the chillest feet. dog of all time. Yeah, because like most of the time dogs can be a little defensive like with people. And he, the dog probably spent way more time with the kids than he did with him because he was home all day with those children, you know. Well, like, with the mother. She took him out for walks yeah. every night. Yeah. She literally walked in with him on a leash and then this dude started murdering her. And this dog doesn't bark. Like master, like dog. Yeah, I, yeah. This no might be the this like, might be the first dog that I just indifferent towards. I don't know, guys. The dog may have been a victim too. Yeah, we don't yeah, know. We, don't know. <laughs> we can't blame the dog. So many emotions. <laughs> okay, so he drives almost three hundred miles and end up stopping in a swampy area of North Carolina called Columbia. There, he digs a shallow grave. I. Obviously, because I hate myself. Uh, I read that it was about the size of a bathtub where he um, put the babies in first. He put the little boys on the bottom and then his wife and then his mother on top and covered them in the gasoline from that he bought earlier and then set their bodies on fire. That's what that was for. Yeah. I've been wondering when that was going to come into play. I had a feeling because like. Hammer, gas station. I was like, I know where this is going, and I hate it, but I don't even want to think about it. I'm I'm on a need to know basis <laughs> at this point. That's literally me every week. Like I know where this is going, and I hate it, but, but I'm gonna I, keep yep, reading. Same, same. So he sets he sets their bodies on fire. The last confirmed sighting of Bradford Bishop was the next day, March second. Basically, like, immediately after he set their bodies on fire in North Carolina, he drives, like, 30 miles up the road to a sporting goods store where he buys a pair of white tennis shoes with his credit card. So now he's using the credit card again. Paper trail. Yeah. And he evidently was with an an unidentified woman who held Leo on the leash. John Wheatley, who still runs the store, the store that he visited – told police, quote, they seemed very much like a couple. The only thing I could really remember is that she had on a beautiful dress. She seemed to be Caribbean in nature. She was dark-skinned and that they had the dog. Twist. I know. The plot thickens. Was she in on this? This is the only time we hear about this woman. Wow. So, like, she's never heard of before this she's never heard of again like all we know is that in north carolina in the 70s it seemed like he was in a relationship with uh, a black woman which would have been i think that's why the store owner probably remembers it yeah yeah unfortunately Um, yeah so about a week later god this is so fucked up so they had been planning a ski trip they'd been planning the ski trip and talking to their neighbors about it About a week later, the neighbors start to get worried because they had thought like, oh, we haven't seen them around and the car's gone. They must have gone on their ski trip, but they haven't heard from the family. The family hasn't come back, which is really unusual. So a friend who had an extra key to their house at 8103 Lilystone Drive um, calls the police and they come and get the key. 
and go out to the house where police find a trail of blood leading from the front door to the driveway. Inside, police find blood everywhere. In each of the four bedrooms, all over the upstairs bathroom, all of the linens were soaked in blood, the mattresses were soaked through, the pillows, the pillowcases. There were human bones, tissue, fibers, and hair, but no actual bodies. So how always I do this where I I can't figure out like how you would get like bleeding bodies from the inside of a house to a car with no trail. Well, I mean, there's plenty of trail. Oh, there is. Well, yeah, there's blood all over the place. But oh. outside But the like house. outside the house. I just it? assume he just like ho- Well, oh. Was so they mentioned garage? earlier that he wrapped the bodies in blankets. Okay. No. Okay. Cool. So Got I'm it. thinking <laughs> that that happened inside the house and yeah. then when he was dragging the bodies outside, then there's not like blood smear in the driveway. No one saw it. No one saw anything. No one heard anything. So there's no bodies. There's only like what would like all the stuff where you would assume you would find a dead body and then no body. Okay. Investigators have no idea what the hell is going on. At the same time, so remember how we talked about the last time that we saw Bradford was March 2nd? At the same time, literally the day after he set their bodies on fire, a forest ranger is patrolling the forest near Columbia. He finds their bodies, and it's almost a week before the charred remains were connected to the Bishop family because it hadn't registered with anyone that something was wrong. So they find these bodies. They've been lit on fire in the woods, and they start looking in the North Carolina area. Right. It's not until someone calls a week later that they're like, oh, two women and three boys of, like, the same ages. We think that these are these people. So – so no one's been looking for Bradford either. Oh, man. Because the bodies were found before police went into their home. Exactly. So the bodies are found and they think... But like, what would they know? You yeah. Know? Like they think so like, oh, it must away. be people in the area. Let's yeah. start seeing... Like, let's start combing right. and seeing if yeah. anyone's missing. Missing people reports, stuff like that. Ugh. And it's this family who are all the way from Washington, D.C. And no one's been looking for the father because no one has registered... That there's something wrong. Right. 16 days after the bodies were found in the forest in March 1976, Bishop's blood-spattered car was found 400 miles away, abandoned in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee. Wow. So he's getting around. He's, he's like driving far, far distances. Inside the station wagon, the, black, the back floor was coated with drying blood and blood-stained blankets. An axe and a shotgun were found on the floor, along with dog biscuits for Leo, who had also disappeared. They also have not – so there's no trace of the dog either. In the glove compartment, there were maps of the southern states, along with an empty vial of Cirax, that medication that he was on. And the spare tire boot, like that compartment where your extra tire sets, was filled with blood. Oh, God. Jesus. Steve Vogt, the special agent in charge of the case right now, is quoted as saying, nothing has changed since March 2nd, 1976, when Bishop was last seen, except for the passage of time. Bishop should be considered extremely dangerous with suicidal tendencies. No one has seen him. No one has heard from him. No one knows where he is to this day. What? Crazy. 
But you now, wonder, did he book? Like, did he leave? He spoke so many languages. Ooh, we're about to talk about this girl. Ooh. I got you. <laughs> when police began looking into Bishop, they found, I think, two things that kind of struck me as pretty disturbing. Firstly, there was a letter in his desk, like a handwritten letter at his desk at work from a convicted felon that had like some very weird language, which led them to believe that he'd actually been planning to kill his family for a very long time. So the letter was numbered number six. So they think that it was like number six in a series of letters that basically are outlining the murder of this family. They didn't find this letter until like very recently. So that felon has passed away since then. And they were never able to talk to him. So they waited that long to search his office? No, or someone just- packed up all of his stuff. Like when this happened, someone yeah. packed up all of his stuff and it wasn't combed through very, very carefully. Okay. And so recently when they went back and were like, let's look through his stuff and see if there's anything we can find, they find this letter. Gotcha. They also found a document in Bishop's security file at the State Department, which stated that the CIA had done a quote-unquote damage assessment of Bishop's knowledge of its activities after he disappeared. So the CIA had gone in and done some kind of investigation into all of Bishop's work and any kind of risk that he might pose after his disappearance. But they concluded that it does not consider Bishop a possible espionage target, which really only adds more questions for me about what Bishop's job actually was right. because he was working for the State Department. Before that, he had been in counterintelligence in the Army. At no point was he working for the CIA. So why do they have any kind of questions about their own operations when it comes to him? Right. So after that, police uncovered like mild financial problems, which – is I think pretty common for everyone. Like money is stressful. Especially yeah. he wasn't getting all those promotions. Anne's dissatisfaction with the prospect of leaving her her home for another foreign assignment. The dominant role of Bishop's mother and Bishop's visits to three different psychiatrists. But they didn't find any of the stuff that you would traditionally think of when you investigate a man who kills his wife and family. So they didn't find any affairs. They didn't find any secret cache of money that he'd been squirreling away. No real concrete prearranged plan and no CIA plot. Like nothing, nothing to explain why not getting a promotion would trigger him to do something so awful. I guess like dissatisfaction, being depressed, feeling like you're inadequate to your wife, like all of these things probably built up so much over time and like his relationship with his mom, like who knows if he was like maybe resentful to her for the fact that she was like running his household as opposed to it being him or his wife. Like, I don't know. It's always like conjecture in these situations, but like he definitely planned this for a long time. Yeah. Like, it's just so crazy. I wonder how much the death of his father affected him. Could be. I feel like we're all approaching this from like such a like similar angle where if Mike was here, he would just be like, no, this dude was just crazy. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. was just well, a he, monster and a piece of trash. I mean, but then like if the CIA was looking into like what he was doing, like who knows what he was doing in Africa and like, you know, like all these things, like maybe he's seen some so shit. So that's my thought is Could like, been. there's no way, there's no way. I 
spoiler alert, have never murdered anyone. <laughs> um, so there's no way that I, within like a six to eight hour period, would be able to get my shit together enough or take enough drugs to make me okay with murdering my entire family. Like everyone who I've ever had in the world, boom, gone, decimated, which is why like his name in the investigation was the family annihilator. Yeah. In a span of a day, just gone. Literally. Just the entire family gone. Tools purchased. And like completely executed to like to a T. It was done in such a short period of time. He knew what he was doing. Like even if his mom did sort of catch him by surprise, he seemed ready. I mean, physically also. I mean, just the physicality of murdering someone in that way is crazy. Like just so intense. Oh, God. It's so awful. Like your children watching their sibling. Oh, God. It. And then, so, like, whenever I think of spy murders or, like, spy thrillers, I always think of a silencer on a gun. Boom, boom. Yeah, execution you're in style. Whereas murdering someone with a hammer, with a hammer that I thought was huge and really was not a small hammer, in that close proximity is really, really personal. I was, um, I was actually watching, so... CNN had this series with John Walsh, the guy from uh, America's Most Wanted, where they kind of did a little segment on him. It's called The Hunt. And uh, there's this forensic psychologist who they interview and he says, the murder is not over when the victims die. The murder is over once he satiated his anger with them. He's still killing them even after they're dead. It doesn't count unless someone sees it, so he lights their bodies on fire. He's making a statement. I am in control. These are my family members. I did it. Screw you. So cold. Basically saying, like, these murders are super personal. That's why he did it this way. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, these people were so innocent. He wasn't, I feel like, okay, so he premeditated the whole thing. And yeah. whatever, yeah. we don't really know how long it took him. But he left the house bloody. Like, he knew that someone was going to enter his home. And then he buys the new shoes, which drives me crazy. Like, yeah. he must have yeah. had an extra set of clothes. Yeah. He Because you don't murder people and, like, get super bloody and light their bodies on fire and then walk into a store like that. What's yeah. stuck in my mind right now is that he kills someone on the top, top, like, bunk of a bed. Yeah. Like, you're an adult. If you're hitting the ceiling there's not a lot of room like it's so personal you're so close like he must have had blood like the blood of his children and it's your son it's your baby son yeah i i know we keep trying to find like well but no he's just a garbage human yeah just just yeah just absolute absolute trash yeah so the aftermath number one people see this dude everywhere he's legitimately like elvis for people who follow international crime People who, like, see wanted posters of him or have seen the America's Most Wanted segment on him seem to believe that they've spotted him in car washes, libraries, and even posing as a janitor at a Southern California school. Oh, you went back to California. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? (laughs) According to police and newspaper reports, he's been spotted in Spain, Italy, Sweden, France, Greece, England, Finland, Belgium, and Switzerland. (laughs) Wow. Okay. 
when they were doing their investigation, like after combing through all of these leads, there have only been three credible sightings of Bishop or someone who may have looked like Bishop since 1976. So in 1976, a Swedish woman and former acquaintance said she spotted him in Stockholm in July. In 1978, a former neighbor said she saw him on a train in Basel, Switzerland. And in September 1994, a former colleague stood next to him in a men's room in Sorrento, Italy, or someone who he thought was him. This guy said, I thought he was a vagrant. He was standing there and I came and stood right next to him. And for some reason, I turned in my mind's eye. I stripped off the beard and saw the foreign service officer that I knew in Washington, D.C. I just impulsively said, you're Brad Bishop, aren't you? And he began trembling and shaking and said, oh, God, no. And turned around. Oh, my God. I have no doubt it was him. But for all intents and purposes, this dude straight up disappeared without a trace. Most investigators at this point actually believe that he's one of these people who's just hiding in plain sight and just got himself a new name. So part of his job in the Foreign Service was making dummy passports like yeah. for other spies. Yeah. And so they think That's that... That's what I was wondering is like how well... Yeah. Like Because it's one thing in the, in the 70s. Like, okay, you can just travel, you know, security is lax, but... In the 90s, it's fairly recent Yeah, to be in a completely different country from the last time, the last one you were seen in. So what a lot of people think is that he just dummied up like new identification for himself and is literally just living in the U.S., like just living his life. Crazy. So for a while, they thought that he could be like one of a couple different people. And if you – so if you Google Bradford Bishop – You'll see this like weird, it's like a headshot of a dead body. And it was this guy in Alabama who they they thought was him. They thought it was him and they exhumed the body and did DNA testing and it wasn't him. And it's weird because when I look at the picture, I'm like, holy shit, that person looks exactly like him. And it's it's not the right guy. Like there's just no trace of this person. So, in 2014, Bradford Bishop was added to the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, hoping to bring national and international attention to the case in a way that was impossible when this actually happened in the 70s. So, this guy, um, Agent Vote, who's like in charge of the case now, said, When Bishop took off in 1976, there was no social media or 24-hour news cycle. There was no sustained way to get his face out there like there is today. And the only way to catch this guy is through the public. So there's actually a Facebook page that's dedicated to finding him or, which I think is super interesting, they're also soliciting pictures or possible leads on Leo the dog. Because they believe that he kept Leo alive for a reason. Like they believe that he loved this dog so much that he couldn't kill him. And that even even though like if Leo did live for a long time, he'd be dead today, that he would continue to have a similar kind of dog. People that own golden retrievers usually just own Yeah, a dog person's a dog person, even when he's a sociopath. Right. Today, there are no concrete leads on the case. Wow. That's insane. He planned and executed to a T, apparently. Yeah, that makes me think, like, this espionage bullshit. Like, he... He had the background. He was in on something. something. 
some kind of training on like how to disappear and like how to be, you know, and invisible and plain to travel sight. the world knowing to, that people are looking for you. Yeah. And going back to the places where, like, there's the possibility of running into people who know him. Like, being in a stall with someone who you worked with is crazy. Like, what are you doing there? Go somewhere else. And if you look at this guy, he has a very distinct look. So I'm I'm Googling his picture right now. All of his features are super distinct. His eyes, his nose, his mouth, his chin are very specific in a way that I think it it would be difficult to just like blend into the crowd, especially if there are like wanted posters all over looking for you. His career to somehow blend into the crowd, even though you don't look like everyone else. He had the correct background to do something like this. I know, sneaky fucker. Okay, so let's talk about the weird shit associated with this case. If this case was not weird enough, (laughs) literally one year. After five people were murdered in their house in Bethesda, someone bought it. Okay. This dude, Robert Neiser, and his wife said that they, quote, fell in love with the house. Of course. And that it was absolutely perfect. And it was covered in blood. It's not like, oh, just someone died in this specific room. Every room. Every room. They probably didn't see the, like, murder scene, though. They cleaned that up and they sold it. But, oh, so, only a year, which means that most people were still living in, the, like, the neighbors. The neighbors were still there. Were still there. I mean, you know the neighbors were just, like, those psycho people moving into I that would not, yeah, house. I would keep my distance. Also, As someone, like, jumping yeah. into that opportunity. No, oh, they yeah. went on the, so they were on the radio because this was huge news that the house sold. Um, they went on the radio and bragged about, like, what a deal they were getting on what? the house. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. A little okay. tacky there. That's kind of that's yeah awful. <laughs> My favorite detail about this is that they were moving from Florida to Maryland because, like, of course of they were okay, from Florida. So it, okay. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. We both – so Jen and myself live in Florida, so we get to shit on Florida. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's, for Florida. Yeah. Just, you know. Like, I hate everyone else in the country talking about Florida. Bring shame. But I'm allowed because I live there. And I get it. And yeah, Florida someone. Sucks. Oh my god, that makes so like someone would move from Florida and brag about the yes. Yeah. <sighs> like not a year after children, beautiful, sweet angels were murdered by their father and brag about the price of the home. And like he goes on a whole little tangent about like how he was really a shrewd negotiator. Oh, <laughs> no, God. dude, that's not it. That's it wasn't you. It was, you know. No. So uh, this guy, Rob Neiser, says, when people ask me about living in the Bishop house, I tell them I'm selling glossy prints for $25 to help me with the mortgage. What? Don't joke about these things. But if you get such a good deal and you still need help with your garbage <laughs> humans. Why? He's a hustler, homie. I mean, yeah. He... Okay, so then the second weird thing, and actually, like, after talking about the people who bought the house, it just leads me to think, like, what the fuck was going on in the 70s? Because, so they buy the house one year afterwards. Two years afterwards, a bluegrass group called Coupe de Grass, spelled with two S's, uh, released a song called The Ballad of Bradford Bishop. What? 
super dark lyrics drugs like that's drugs. that's it's the 70s, it's the 70s all these people yeah. are doing copious amounts of cocaine yeah. and that's, thinking to themselves like yes bluegrass about is, murder i yeah, love this it this is acceptable make a catchy bluegrass tune so super dark lyrics depicting the life and murders oh god um paired with upbeat bluegrass melodies so you can you can actually listen to to the oh, song no. online. You you can find it. Oh man! But um, the worst part I think is that it ends with uh, the following lines: "Someday they'll find him down in old Mexico." Like, of course you're gonna pick on Mexico, you jerks. Um, down in old Mexico with Leo, his retriever, drinking Jose Cuervo. Oh no! Why did he do it? No one can tell. He traded his family for a ticket to hell. What the fuck? And okay, this was done two years okay, after so the murder. Too soon, guys. Okay, way, way too, too soon. soon. Like so, as a fan of indie music, there are a lot of dark songs out there. Yeah. But it's like things that happened decades ago, and like sad, you know, like indie sad yeah, music, yeah. not bluegrass. Not two years ago. Oh, what was the happening in the seventies? A young, lot of a lot. Yeah. yeah, a lot was happening. The, the in youngest the 70s. boy would only be seven. Like you're singing about, I I can't, <laughs> I I can't with these no, fucking I people. Can't, yeah. Um. So that's all that I have on on these murders. You guys have any following like wrap up thoughts? I'm just still processing. Yeah, <laughs> and thinking about Leo. It's because like. Dude, you should have barked. It's <laughs> the worst. I can't. Like, I don't. Dog. Yeah, like I can't. I mean, like, we know like the real, just human pile, just burning garbage in this yeah, story. Yeah, we're all but, just terrible. Yeah. yeah, but that's just where my thoughts go. Well, yeah, I'm like looking at like Rusty over here, who's passed out. Billy, who's also passed out, and I just. In my heart of hearts, like sometimes Mike and I will just be like joking around. He'll like push me on the bed. I'll like push him. It's always very fun, haha, joking. But Billy still like goes nuts barking yeah. at us. Break it up, you two. Yeah, she's an extremely good dog. Like no shenanigans around her. <laughs> <laughs> she's constantly policing our behavior. Exactly. Yeah, Someone needs to. We can't be trusted. No. So no, all that I can think is like. What the fuck was going on? And you know it was the 70s. People didn't put up with that kind of shit. But, like, did he feed the dog? Was he like, you know, here's some food, dog. I will distract you and then go murder my family. You know? Like, he could have done so many things. I find it hard to blame the dog. I know dogs should have barked. But even if he had, you know, like, how many barks would it really take before, like, your neighbors are like, okay, something seriously bad is happening. That is true. You know? Like, dogs bark. And if someone has a dog and I hear it barking, like... I don't assume, like, oh, well, something actually, awful is happening. I mean, sometimes I do because I have a tendency to scare myself with, like, really I always things. assume that the worst is happening. Yeah, no. So. Uh, I think it was, like, about a month and a half ago, my husband and I were in our apartment, and we live next to a adorable pit bull, and he was barking nonstop. And we did go outside to, like, try to see if there was something going on because it was not normal that a dog was barking so much. What was going on? He was left home alone. Oh, well, yeah, okay. That lights, also yeah, sucks. Yeah, like, all the lights were off. We were kind of, like, trying to listen if, like, there were people in the apartment. He eventually stopped. Have you seen, seen the people him, since? We've seen, okay. we've seen our neighbors and the dog. Um, but sometimes, you know, dogs bark, and you have to check it out. 
You know. Yeah. It's the saddest part, Leo the dog. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, a lot of sadness. A lot. You guys have any happy news for this week? Any stuff that made you happy this week? Uh, we're in D.C., and that is really happy because we're all yeah. together. Yeah, we, we brought our beautiful South Florida weather this weekend. What the uh, hell is going on with you? Yeah, I'm very I, upset. So same. as someone that lives in South Florida in a constant summer weather, I was uh, hoping to catch some nice, cold, you know, I brought my winter gear that no I luck. obviously never use. Um, no, I, I was hot yesterday walking around. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Like I, I'm happy for everyone. Like it was, it was kind of cool seeing like everyone come out in shorts. Yeah, and like you can tell, like in the like people are really happy about this weather. But that's that's home (laughs) for us, I guess. But it's also freaking me out for the summer. Yeah, because it gets very hot. Yeah, it's gonna be so hot this summer if this is what winter has been like. Maybe you'll get like a weird snowstorm storm in March or something. Global warming. Yeah, you know. We don't know what's going to happen. No one does. No. Because evidently our husbands could be ready to murder us in six hours. Oh, and our dogs will just sit there. And our dogs will just sit there and I'm gonna, When pants, I get home, I'm like going to have a, a talk with my dog. <laughs> yeah. Hey, dude. Level with me, man. I don't think my husband will ever do anything to me. But if something gets weird, spark. Jump in there. Well, also... <laughs> I feel like this guy was, like, a spy and, like, a liar by trade. Chris, Alba's husband, is the number one worst liar. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he does not lie. I have ever met. It makes me feel bad because sometimes, you know, you just, like, oh, you know, hey, mom, I can't come over because, like, I have to work late. No. Not with that No, he would, that would never fly with him. I feel like he judges me. Because you're able to tell because white I'm lies. Able, yeah, because I'm able to just get out of plans that he wants to get out of. But he can't lie. But he can't yeah. lie. <laughs> he can't do it. So he's like tied down unless if he has Alba to like lie for Yeah, him. his face gives him away. So my family loves him. He speaks, he, he doesn't speak Spanish, but like his, he has a kind face. So they love him. And he I'm just does like, have he's, a very like trustworthy head. Yeah. yeah. He does. It's be, yeah. Small. And like, <laughs> And that's how, that, I, like, I thought about it, I'm like, I'm, this is going to sound really bad, but it's just, you know how, like, villains in movies No, Mike's dairy, head is enormous. Oh, my God. And, and like, I feel like it's very sketchy. They just have, like, these, sketchy. like, angles, and he doesn't. <laughs> and that, that may sound bad, but it's a beautiful human being, but he just, he's so, like, my, my aunt calls him a Care Bear. Oh, Oh, Chris. Well, I guess if there's one thing that we can take away from this episode, it's that we all love Chris. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Um, As always, please follow Detective Society on Twitter at The Detective Pod. Uh, Feel free to donate to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Detective Society. We have some really, really cool perks. Um, join our Facebook group, the Detective Society Facebook group, where you can kind of post and interact with other listeners. Anything else? Thank you for having us. Oh, yeah. I was uh, so much. never done a podcast before, so neither have I. Yeah. I have a so, listener. Oh, it's fine. You don't you don't have to have any talent. 
or be good, smart. Good, good. You I'm just glad. have I to just, like. Yeah. yeah, again, we're not experts. So everything no, we said that I was like, that is true. It's we don't know. <laughs> no, not a clue. I have no professional opinion. I'm on vacation. Like this is just fun. Yeah, we're just sitting around drinking martinis, yeah. talking about murder I on our vacation. Martinis, so shout out to Mike for making the martinis for us. Mike Before did make us martinis. Before we kicked them out of his own apartment. <laughs> yeah, true. Before I literally said to my husband, like, get out. Yeah, we, yeah, we were very mean, but you know. We've got things to do. Much love on the martini game. Yes. Yeah. 